Samuel L. Jackson in basketball. It doesn't get much better than that. This is The Replay, Sports on the Big Screen, a podcast about the greatest sports movies of all time. I'm your host, Bruce Murray. The 2005 movie Coach Carter tells the story of Ken Carter, a local businessman who takes a job as the head coach of his alma mater, Richmond High School in Richmond, California. Through discipline and unconventional methods, he teaches his players the importance of academics ahead of the importance of basketball. The real-life story of Coach Carter gained national attention after an article was published in the San Francisco Chronicle detailing how he locked his 16-3 team out of their own gym due to grades that didn't meet the minimum requirement he set based on a contract he had them sign at the beginning of the season. Carter was a disciplinarian. He wanted to give his players the best possible chance to succeed in life outside of basketball. Here's John Gatons, the writer of the film, and other sports films such as Summer Catch and Hardball. It was one of those things that just kind of caught news producers' eyes. And like within a day or two, Katie Couric is standing in the parking lot of Richmond High School, Stinger Van, you know, amidst hundreds of other people, like thinking this is this story that everybody wants to tell. For the players on that Richmond Oilers team, the lockout came out of nowhere. The team was 16 and 3, and they thought they should be spending more time on the court, not less. Here's Courtney Anderson, a leader on that team who would go on to play tight end for the Oakland Raiders. We showed up. I remember vividly walking up to the doors. And it was like, but what is he, what is he doing? Like, it was just more of a like, what, what, what is he doing now? His former teammate, Wayne Oliver. We were confused. We, like, we didn't know how to respond, to be, to be honest. And so we went to the library. And uh, so uh, that's when we got a little bit more information. It was told to us that we wouldn't be practicing. We wouldn't be playing uh, any games uh, for... At that time, I don't think he told us a specific amount of time at that ve- that very day, but uh, he just said we would report there. And so, like, it was literally uh, news reporter reporters following us to class and stuff. So it wasn't just like an easy breezy smooth transition. And so, like that, like it was just it was just shock after shock after shock because we didn't see understand what the big deal was. If you look at the movie, it says six people was ineligible at the time. Six people. Think about it. Our starting five had good grades throughout the whole time. In fact, the only player who had subpar grades at the time was Wayne. If you're going to give me attention, give me attention for the right reasons, right? For him, and if you take a step back, he did the right thing, right? If we had bad grades and you made education a, a priority, Go for it, right? I'm not sitting up here and saying that the, the, the intentions and the motivation wasn't there. I just think he applied it to the wrong team, if that makes sense, in my opinion. Like, you know what I mean? Our team wasn't that team but full of knuckleheads and bad grades kids and things of that nature. You know what I'm saying? I was always on point for all my stuff. And Chris Dixon, which played quarterback, was my quarterback when I played football. I played football and basketball. He was on point. Chris Gibson... He never got in trouble. He was always on point. You know what I'm saying? Damon Carter, which was his son, he was always... So, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we didn't necessarily have to... It's different. It was a whole bunch of, like, man, we got to slap these guys on the butt. We got to do this. We got to do that. Like, we was all on point. But to the real-life Coach Carter, if one failed, the whole team failed. The standoff, just like we see in the film, led to an outcry from parents, administrators, and other members of the community. But this was a cause that Coach Carter believed in so much, he would not relent. I mean, kids who are really legitimately looking for college opportunities are obviously feeling like they're not getting that chance. So the parents, I think, actually, but also 
you know, the town and the school feeling like this is a shining spot in our program. It's like, why are you taking it away from them? Now, remember, Coach Carter was doing this despite the fact he wasn't actually a teacher at the school. It was not his job to make sure these kids were getting good grades or even graduating. He was a local businessman whose sole purpose was to coach the basketball team. A lot of times it's the social studies teacher or whoever it is that coaches the team, but he didn't work for the school other than the fact that he was the basketball coach. So I think there was a little bit of them saying like, it would be different if it was a teacher or if it was an administrator, but it's like, what is this guy's angle for doing this? And what, what's the thing he's trying to teach? Wayne Oliver. You got to think for some people that the, the success of that team, for some guys, that might've been the highest success of their life. And to this day, when you take joy out of a community that has a lot of trauma, like no one likes that. Right. You know, so uh, so there were parents, there were students and players alike that like were in the moment angry. We just want to play basketball and we didn't see what the big deal was. This isn't the NBA. What are we being locked out for? And so like like let us play. And um, so, yeah, there were a lot of people, including myself. I wasn't happy that I couldn't go to practice. Like, that was one of the highlights of my day as a teenager. This strict approach was something that a lot of these kids had never encountered before, not by their parents, their teachers, or anyone else. If you were really good at basketball, it's like you kind of called the shots at a young age. Like, you could say when you're going to show up, who you're going to play for, what games you come to. And he was like, that's not how it's going to work. A lot of us didn't have fathers in the home and stuff like that. So we're used to um, mushing up our moms and sweet talking our moms to get in our way and stuff like that. And so, like, it was it was different when you had a male holding you accountable. By this time, everyone in Hollywood is desperately trying to chase Ken Carter for his story and for his rights. The two men who would eventually become the film's producers, Mike Tolan and Brian Robbins, were able to meet with Ken Carter and convince him that they were the right people to tell the story. Once that agreement was made, they reached out to Gatons to see if this was something he'd be interested in writing. I was kind of tied up and I was like, no, I can't jump in with you guys, whatever. So they had Mark Schwann, who's the other edited writer, who they were working on a television show with at that point. One Tree Hill, which was kind of a basketball-based show to some extent. And so Mark jumped in with them and got an initial script together and things just kind of like go as they always do. It's fast, fast and slow, slow. And my project slowed down and Mark got something else going and whatever. And Sherry Lansing, the one around the studio said, why don't you get Gatons to come and help now? So I kind of came back into it at that point and I wrote a script and they greenlit it. And then they started putting the movie together. They got Sam Jackson and, Next thing you know, I was meeting Ken Carter in Richmond, California, you know, and they were scouting to see what a landscape looked like up there, um, interviewing the guys who had been on the team, but really focusing mostly on Ken Carter and his story he tells it of what happened, you know. Coach Carter makes for a fascinating movie character. He's a man with infectious passion and strong morals, the perfect person to base a Hollywood film around. While John was writing the script in the early 2000s, Two years after the lockout, he would routinely pick the coach's brain, asking him questions that would allow him to portray the most accurate version of Coach Carter possible. We went up there. We saw the sporting goods store and the salon that he owned. And like we we drove around with him and we went to the school, which was really an unbelievable thing to see because 
it had like no windows. You know, it was like this really intense looking building that had a lot of gates and like iron mesh on the windows and things. And it was a really, really, it's one of the toughest places, man. We spoke to the vice principal of that school and she was like, we have a really hard time because we have kids in the Pacific Rim. She was like that are in gangs in their native countries that come here and still have these gang warfares with other kids from there that are here. And she was like, there's language barriers. There's so such a mix of different kids from different cultures here. And it's a lot of really, really tough sledding. And it's like not a lot of kids graduate from that school. It's a really, really challenged school in a really, really challenged part of the country. So that's the perfect setup. So the important question, who plays Coach Carter? For Carter himself, there was only one option, the legendary Samuel L. Jackson. At this stage of his career, Samuel L. Jackson was one of the most prominent actors in Hollywood. So Carter was really reaching for the stars. But Jackson loved the part and accepted to come on board. For the people who knew the real Ken Carter, it was an interesting casting choice, especially considering one specific physical detail. Here's Wayne. Well, first off, it's about a six or seven inch height difference. <laughs> That's the first thing. But uh, uh, I think Samuel depicted like uh, some of, really well, like some of the mannerisms and stuff of Coach Carter, because Coach Carter, he has this way of like turning on this switch where he's really stern. And uh, but at other times he's he's playful, just like Samuel's uh, character. I think that was a pretty good uh, depiction, to be honest. Coach Carter's son, Damian, was a member of that 1999 Richmond team. Robert Richard, who you're about to hear from, was the man who portrayed him. They cast Sam Jackson and then they weren't a little sure about whether or not they wanted me to play the son, mostly because of like complexion. I have green eyes and the believability of that. Um, so I wasn't actually invited to like audition for the show for a while, but then sort of like at the last run, uh, Sam Jackson kind of requested that he meet with me directly and do a chemistry read. So basically after everyone was cast, I was the very last person who got to go meet Sam before I was cast, had a chemistry read with him. And Sam was the one that picked me to play his son. So it was kind of like nice to be like him having sort of my back being like, you're going to play my son. I see you as like, the upstanding suit and tire wearing, you know, five Browns wearing sort of athlete um, to, to play the, the, the nerd character. <laughs> and Robert was a great basketball player, as were most of the other actors playing the Richmond Oilers, as well as members of the opposing teams. That was basically the top prerequisite for getting hired. Some of our players were from the Drew League. Uh, the big uh, guy, Junior, uh, the opposing tie, Ty Crane, even the guy playing Warm on our team, he was a Drew League player. Then there's sort of more of like the actor-dominant ones for like the drama sequences and all that kind of stuff. Me, Rob Brown, Rick Gonzalez. There was, however, a certain member of the cast that had no experience acting or playing basketball whatsoever. It's fine, though. I think we all know it ended up quite well. So uh, the story was I got cast and they told me to go to Howard Johnson in L.A. and go pick up this guy named Channing Tatum, who was a model. So I pull up in my truck. He hops in the car with his like super fly New York jacket on and like the hat cocked to the side. And I was hanging out with him and I took him to practice every single morning and like, you know, couldn't dribble the basketball. But the producer, uh, one of the female producers was like, doesn't matter. This guy can't act or can't play basketball. He's going to be in the movie. The funny thing about it is like in the production office, they have everyone's pictures up. So Sam's pictures first, my pictures second, they have all the other cast members. 
for all of our pictures is like a headshot from acting from Channing's pictures and underwear ads from Dolce and Gabbana. I'm like, they don't require him to shoot a basketball. Just being the fellow, be the hot guy. So. Of course, as soon as this movie was released, Channing Tatum's career would explode. Now he's one of the biggest stars in the world. But back to Coach Carter. Once shooting for the film began, which was roughly five years after the lockout, the real Coach Carter took a back seat and let the professionals take charge. The shoot was an incredibly tough one, especially for the players. Sometimes they'd be on the court for 12 hours a day trying to get the right shot from the right angles. Not only did you have to know how to play basketball, you needed to be in incredible shape. All of the basketball sequences were coordinated by former Appalachian State wide receiver Mark Ellis. He's been the sports action coordinator on a number of sports movies, including The Longest Yard, The Rookie, and Invincible. Quite the day job. And he was brought in to do basketball choreography, essentially to align all of our plays with the camera movement so that we're doing the exact same thing every take and they're getting the exact same shot with the camera, the camera angles every take. It can be pretty taxing on us because um, in a movie scene, we're shooting one storyline, one choreography from like multiple angles. So that one basketball play, we might shoot that for 26 hours because it's 26 different angles from the crane, the close-up shots, the basketball being dribbled. Um, and you just have to sort of like, they basically made sure that we had the conditioning in place to be able to sweat for, you know, three days doing the exact same play. I was, I don't know, I was very, very, very sore. <laughs> but it was worth it. The basketball scenes in this movie are outstanding and the audiences loved it. Writer John Gatons. I remember the first test screening that we showed the movie at and we were curious because the movie was long. Like we felt the movie was a little bit long, but the director gets his cut. So he made a cut that was like two hours, 15 minutes long. And we're like, that's long. There's probably 10 minutes that we know that can come out of the movie. The movie tested through the roof, which gave the director the opportunity to say, I'm done. Like, this is what I want. I remember the weekend we opened, remember the Fockers, it was a huge hit and it had been crushing, winning every weekend at the box office. And we won the weekend, and they came second to us. Coach Carter did, in fact, beat out Meet the Fockers for the highest-grossing film in its opening weekend. It made over $24 million to the Fockers' $19 million. But the following weekend, places were flipped. From there, Coach Carter's numbers started declining quickly. According to the filmmakers, this was due in a large part to an issue that plagued the movie industry throughout the 2000s, film piracy. I went and did a panel a Q&A and one of the actors was there and he and I were just catching up and whatever. And he said, oh man, I said, I knew we were going to get killed the second weekend. I said, what are you talking about? He said, the weekend the movie opened, I went to get my haircut at the barber and the barber said, hey man, will you sign my DVD? It was like, DVD? He was like, what are you talking about? So the movie had already been pirated and like distributed all over the place. So it kind of really hurt our, uh, our take in the second weekend kind of thing. The most amazing thing about this film is that it's pretty much all true. Well, at least when it comes to the character of Coach Carter himself. The only parts of his journey that the film changed was the fact that he'd been at the school for a couple of seasons, since 1997 to be exact, before locking them out of the gym. He wasn't a new face as the film suggests, and the team that he inherited was not missing its five leading scorers from the previous season. In fact, they had largely the same roster as the year prior, and how he got the Richmond coaching job was different as well. Here's Wayne Oliver. My freshman year and sophomore year, I went to a different high school. I'm from Richmond, but I went to a school called uh, Pinole Valley High School, which is like 10 minutes up the freeway. 
I was having trouble my 10th grade year. I didn't play basketball at all, bad grades and stuff. And so um, me and one of my best friends at the time uh, went to go watch his little brother's basketball game. Coach Carter was coaching that youth basketball game. And uh, during halftime, me and my friends, we're out there shooting. I go out there, I'm slam dunking and stuff. And Coach Carter, he comes up to me and he says, uh, where do you play? And I was like, I, I don't play anywhere right now. And he's like, well, uh, I'm thinking about coaching in Richmond High. And they, even though you're not supposed to be doing this, it's kind of like illegal. But uh, he said, I'm coaching in Richmond High next year. And uh, what you think about coming there? And um, he, he ended up getting my information and talking to my mom. And my mom just wanted some help with me. So she was open to it and stuff. So uh, fast forward, we're at Richmond High and they had a meeting. Um, it was two staff members, like a principal, a counselor and three basketball players. And they interviewed three guys and uh, we had to vote. And so the two staff members voted for Coach Carter. The two players voted for another coach. So I was the deciding vote. So if I if I went with the players, it would have been another coach. If I go with the staff members, Coach Carter gets hired. Courtney Anderson was one of the players who voted against Coach Carter. I didn't really want Coach Carter to be my coach. You know what I'm saying? Just to be honest with you, I wanted our JV coach, which was at the time was Dante McCarthy, to be our, our head coach because he, he applied for the same position. Well, when Dante McCarthy walked in there, he had just, you know what I mean? He presented himself like, hey, man, I'm, 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 I've been coaching these guys for a couple of years. He was a JV coach. And he wanted to get involved to varsity. He was like, you know, I want to be this guy's coach and, uh, you know, and things of that nature. We was like, yeah, Dante's our guy. Well, Coach Carter came in there. He had a suit and tie on, a briefcase, all that good stuff like that. And the administrator kind of liked him. It wasn't like I didn't want him personally. I was just more familiar with the other coach. So once Coach Carter started, it's true. He handed each of his players a contract detailing the grades they must maintain as well as their dress code for game day. But according to Courtney, the importance of abiding by the contract wasn't as prevalent as was depicted in the film. It wasn't like a recurring thing like, hey, don't forget you guys signed these contracts. You guys got to abide by this contract. You guys are name on this contract. You guys are your mom signed it, things of that nature. And so when the lockout kind of came, he was like, hey, don't don't you guys remember you signed this contract? It was like it was like a month ago. It was like two months ago. As for the depiction of the players themselves, no one was based on any specific member of the real-life Richmond High School team. Each character was, instead, a composite. For instance, none of the kids were in a gang like we see with Timo Cruz, played by Rick Gonzalez. But that portrayal did reflect what real life was like in Richmond. We didn't really dig into their personal stories. It wasn't like, you know, that's where I would say the movie, when we disappear their lives, that's where the biggest kind of extension creatively came about because we just had stories we wanted to tell about challenges that kids of that era in that geography kind of came up against. For Courtney, however, even the depiction of his beloved Richmond High was off. That wasn't the Richmond High he remembered. It wasn't a terrible school, man. It wasn't like a super, super bad, like uh, we had to protect ourselves and wear milk. Like, wear guns and stuff like that. Like, But if you look at the movie, we got metal detectors and stuff like that. Like, that wasn't true, man. Like, I remember watching a documentary with him speaking. He said, I got the Richmond. They didn't have no nets on the rim. They didn't have no socks and shoes. Like, what are you talking about? Like, when I hear that, it's like, it's disrespectful to my mother who worked two jobs to provide for me. I had socks and shoes. We had a net on the rim. Like, what are you talking about? Like, little stuff like that. 
kind of bothered me. Like, man, like that wasn't true. Like, we don't, you don't have to, like, you don't have to put it out there like that to make it seem like we was a super in a, pro, a provived situation. Like, you know what I'm saying? So, Wayne Oliver. There was a little Hollywood spin on that. Uh, don't get me wrong. Like, my uh, Richmond, California, for like a lot of my youth, it was listed as like top 10 most dangerous cities in the United States for like multiple years. So just like in the movie, like how someone's brother got killed, my brother literally got murdered when I was 10 years old. So there were there, there were things that were there. It just didn't happen how they said it happened in the movie. Uh, my girlfriend got pregnant in high school, just like someone in the movie got pregnant. But it just didn't happen how they said it happened in the movie. So it's like they took some pieces from your life, my life, and then just put them both in that character where it may have happened to two different people or the chronological order of when it happened wasn't accurate. I'll say this. It's a movie. It's not a documentary. So uh, me looking at Coach Carter, I, I, I put that, uh, I take account for that. Like, uh, I know that they're making a movie. It has to be entertaining. For instance, we didn't have any white guys on our team, but it's Hollywood. So you got to put a white guy on the team. So while the casting of the players wasn't quite accurate, neither was the way that they talked. So like in New York, they might use the phrase like, yo, son, like we don't say that at all in California. Like some people may now because of the Internet. And like a very Bay Area term that we used in the Bay Area, like we use the word hella, like hella means a lot. Or, and, and so but in L.A., they'll say a gang like I had a gang of uh, it was a gang of people at the mall in the Bay. We'll say is hella people at the mall. And so like none of the slang that we used in the Bay was like really incorporated into the movie. About halfway through the film, we see the team sneak out of the motel after winning a tournament and attend a party at a nearby mansion. According to Wayne and Courtney, this was another example of Hollywood embellishing the facts. There was actually parties, but it was a little bit different. Whether, rather than it being one big house party like they depicted in the movie, we went to, it was actually in McKinleyville, California. Uh, we had a tournament up there and each family housed two to three players. So there were little house parties all over the small town. And Coach Carter did come out and he did look for players and stuff. So it was similar, but not exact. There were no big mansions and, <laughs> and stuff like that. We didn't do nothing crazy, man. We didn't have no parties like that. Like, I, at least not me. Like, I, I was too scared to do anything like that. You know, my mom would, my mom would kill me if I, you know, got in any trouble or anything like that. So, but, uh, but yeah, the parties was whatever, man. We didn't, this not Varsity Blues or Friday Night Lights where we just out there drinking beers and having a good time. I never drank until I got to college. It's called Coach Carter for a reason. It's his perspective on what happened. But as the players that experienced it, our perspective is a little different, you know. Writer John Gatons. There was a few them that felt a little bit like this was the Ken Carter story and that it wasn't really their story, which, you know, you can argue um, yeah, the Ken Carter story. And that was the story that we chose to tell. Um, you could tell stories from every point of view, right? So you could have told it from the kid who was the worst kid in the team could have told the story. And that would be a different kind of, you know, um, outlet to tell the story. And it might've be different, more interesting. Who knows? 
Um, but I think there was a little bit of that from some of those kids who felt like, wow, this guy got famous. And now he goes and gives speeches and talks about, you know, the story of our team. I'm not going to sit here and act like he didn't stress the point of education, but the follow through was what I'm disappointed in, to be honest with you. I was getting recruited for football. I was getting recruited for basketball. I was getting recruited for a lot of different things. And I didn't know the process of getting to college, the clearinghouse, the SATs, the getting all this stuff done. And for you to make a movie about education, and I still have to go to junior college based off my own decisions or, your, or, my, or my lack of understanding, my lack of resources, or whatever you want to call it. And you was there, you put to see me through that. You can't take our success and make it sound like you did that. Me and Chris played football. Like, I me, mean, Chris got a football scholarship. I got a football scholarship. We didn't play basketball. Chris Gibson went to college. He knew what he wanted to do. Wayne played basketball. In the closing credits of the film, we are told what each of these players went on to do with their lives. We did a little bit of, like, grace notes for the actual characters that were created and a little bit of, like, facts as they applied to any kid that was even closely kind of, you know, drawn from the reality of one of the kids in the team, if that makes sense. You know, some of it was factual and some of it was, like, factual to the created characters. It was kind of like a grace note on the story that we'd created and told. It's different now because the scrutiny on something that's a true story is far more intense now than it was then. I mean, this is almost 20 years ago, right? So I think that the movie would probably play differently now or be made differently now, potentially, even though the story is still great and true. It's just different facets of it would be dealt with differently. But honestly, in 2022, who in their right mind would record an entire podcast just to dissect the truth of a 20-year-old sports movie. The ending of the film, however, which has the Oilers losing to St. Francis in the state quarterfinals, was in fact what happened in real life. This was one of the most important things for Ken Carter when selling his story. He wanted to show how young men can lose a basketball game and yet still win in life. You know, Hollywood sort of has this sort of storybook ending all the time, and I'm not a big fan of reading scripts, so I find out on set that we lost. I'm like, wait a minute, we're not, not going to win? <laughs> so, so it's a bit of a surprise to, to me, too. But um, I think it takes a lot of guts from even, like, the studio from Paramount to make a movie where it's not in. And it was actually a Sherry Lansing, who's an amazing uh, studio head, that said, like, let's go with this and say that, like, you know, not everybody uh, gets to hold the trophy, at the end, but it's about like how you play the game and what you learn from the game. That's very, very important. And obviously, you know, with every sports movie, you think, you know, cause I've done a fair amount of them. It's like, Oh, we want to make sure, you know, they win the big game at the end. And the truth is they didn't, it's like, they were an excellent team, but you know, basketball in California is, you know, a, a really competitive sport and they ran up against teams that they couldn't beat. So, but they were excellent. And I mean, I saw footage of them playing. I mean, these kids were good. They had kids who could dunk and they were shooters. They were good. Um, but yeah, it was really, Ken Carter was really kind of the basis of the factual stuff as far as like the everyday team kind of thing and uh, the lockout itself. Since the movie came out, Ken Carter has become one of the most popular motivational speakers in the country. And he remains active in his Northern California community, still making sure kids hit the books. You know, the year after the lockout or maybe two years after the lockout, he did a thing called the Scoot for Education or something where he staged this media event where he was going to use a push scooter to go all the way from Richmond to Sacramento to ask for money for books for the school. 
and he got some local press to do it, but I don't, I think he thought given his success last time around that he was going to have a big following that Katie Couric would return, you know, Ken Carter's legacy will always be tied to this movie and what he was able to accomplish as a basketball coach in Richmond all those years ago. Every coach comes up to me and says, like, I use your movie as a tool for every single season to start the season off with my teams. And that's translated to baseball, hockey, lacrosse teams. I've had plenty of high school basketball coaches hit me up and friends of my sons who were basketball players were like, they never talked about any movie. And they're kind of like, you wrote Coach Carter. I'm like, yeah. Oh, my God, that was my life. It's funny, like, the, the reaction I get from, like, athletes. Like, I'm walking through the airport in Texas, and Kyle Murray's there, and, like, he walks up to me. Like, that's, <laughs> like, you know, quarterback of the Arizona Cardinals, like, Heisman Trophy winner, like, walks up to me. He's like, yo, can I get a picture with you? Coach Carter's my favorite movie. It's pretty wild. Coach Carter was one of those movies, like many others, that I had no awareness of the story before I saw the movie. Even the story that was followed on the national news where he locked his kids out of the gym, I can't say I was aware of it before I walked into the theater. And yet it was one of those Hollywood movies where you fall in love with the lead character who plays the role of disciplinarian over winning basketball games, and you can't help but love him. But then when the movie did come to an end, I couldn't help but wonder, did all these guys go on to do what they did? And I, too, tried to do a little research. was a little more difficult. It was interesting to get the perspectives of the two players that we talked to and how different the impact was by Coach Carter in their lives. You thought when you saw the movie that there'd be great contact after things came to an end, when in fact, it may not have been more than one. But it doesn't diminish the message of the movie, and it certainly doesn't diminish how great the movie was to watch, and it's still to watch over and over. You know, I think that we made one of the best, you know, uh, real-life stories of all time. Uh, then also it happens to be, you know, the next... Uh, element of that is one of the best sports movies of all time you know there's like there's a few out there that everyone knows um you know and there may be a different sport or whatever but i say as far as basketball goes like we we nailed it with coach carter i played a lot of sports as a kid it's like it's a great thing about disciplining yourself and being focused and those kind of things but if you can channel that energy into hey uh education's important probably more important and potentially it's like something that can serve you the rest of your life that would hopefully be the legacy of the movie. I just want people to know that I'm proud to be a part of something that put my city on the map worldwide. Coming up next week on The Replay, sports on the big screen, Lords of Dogtown. I told Stacey, I go, hey, you know, I'll help you write this script because I was at the surf shop six days a week from the day it opened until the day it closed. You know, I saw everything, right? And then... Stacy went, no, I want to do it myself. And uh, so he did. He was supposed to show me the script after he wrote it. Because I said, okay, do whatever you want to do. Great. Show it to me. If I hate it, just cut me out. Leave me out of the whole thing. So um, then I never heard from him for about 10 years. The Replay. Sports on the Big Screen is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our lead producer, Chris Tyler, our sound designer, Robert Moore, and SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts. <laughs>